welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, where Sean Ellis and Ethan Gar interview leaders from the world's fastest growing companies to get to the heart of what's really driving their growth. And now, here are your hosts, Sean Ellis and Ethan Gar. In this week's episode of the Breakout Growth Podcast, Ethan Gar and I chat with Yaya Mokhtarzada, founder and chief revenue officer at Truebill. The Truebill mobile app makes it easy to take control of your personal finances by showing you a complete picture of how you are using your money. It even helps you find ways to save money. In fact, Truebill saved me almost $1,000 within a week of this recording. So Ethan, what stood out at you from this conversation? Uh, it was the rocky road that they've traveled to product market fit. That was probably the thing that was most helpful for me in really understanding what's behind Truebill's breakout growth success. They've actually had 47 months of growth out of their last 48, but they almost didn't make it at all. Yeah, they were on death's doorstep and <laughs> one experiment around premium subscriptions really changed their whole trajectory. But I think it's what that experiment taught them about their audience that really mattered. So it's not just the improved conversion rate, it's that insight that it gave them that really improved their growth trajectory going forward. Exactly. It was the eye-opener for them to product market fit for the business. They were borrowing the affiliate-based fintech models of that time period, You know their inception around 2015. And that experiment showed them which customers valued their services and why. So I'm glad Yaya shared that with us because I think it really frames his whole approach as chief revenue officer, as well as a lot of the key learnings he shared throughout the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. The affiliate model that had previously guided their their uh, revenue model just wasn't what was needed to drive success in that business, and so rethinking that was was really critical. But there was there was a ton of value in this conversation beyond even just the business model change. Oh, for sure. From how they used their LTV to CAC ratio as a guiding metric to how they invested earlier in that homegrown testing solution, they've really figured out how to manage hypergrowth. Yep. And on the topic of hypergrowth. We invite our listeners to check out this week's sponsor, Rise with SAP S4 HANA Cloud. Hypergrowth companies get up and running quickly with this low-cost, easy-to-implement cloud ERP solution. If you are working to power breakout growth success in your business, please check out sap.com slash highgrowth. That's right. And please tap the subscribe button wherever you listen. And if you can tell your friends in growth about this podcast, we always appreciate it. Hey, Sean, should we jump in with Yaya? All right, let's do it. Hi, Yaya. Welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Hey, Sean. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on. And I'm also, of course, joined by my co-host, Ethan Gar. Welcome, Ethan. Thanks. Hey, guys. Great to have you here, Yaya. Likewise. Thank you. Yeah, so um, yeah, yeah, uh, we uh, have had an opportunity to overlap over the years between the some time I spent helping webs.com uh, and and took a look at what you guys were doing uh, fairly early in the true build uh, early true build days. But I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that who may not be um, as familiar with it. So can you give us a quick introduction to to what it is? Yeah, absolutely. So simply put, we think of Truebill as the best platform to run your finances. That means we've built a holistic all-in-one app that pulls in all of your financial data from multiple sources. That's your checking account, your savings account, your credit cards, your investments into one central place. and gives you a really clean, comprehensive view, not just of where your money is, but where it's going and the patterns behind it. 
It also then identifies ways that you can easily save money, things you may be paying for, things you might not need anymore, and basically helps you get helps get you on the right financial track. Very cool. And and um, how did how did you guys decide to uh, launch this business? Yeah, simply put, you know, I've I've never been great at managing my money, and it's you know I think we just set out to build the app that I've always needed. Um, you know, we we started in 2015. And at the time, um, you know, there was just a ton of subscription companies popping up. And, um, you know, we, we knew we wanted to start a company and, and we were going through a ton of ideas. And this one happened kind of serendipitously when I was looking at my credit card statement one day and I saw a charge for $40 for in-flight Wi-Fi. And I thought, oh, you know, that's, that's weird. I didn't fly this month. So I started going back in time and I'd been paying $40 for 14 months before I caught it, which is kind of embarrassing to admit. Yeah, but that sounds exactly like something I would do. <laughs> exactly. And so then, you know, I logged into Amex and I was like, where's my recurring charges? And there's no way to see them. And I was just baffled that there was really no, no easy way short of, uh, you know, going through your credit card statements with a, with a spreadsheet or a pen and paper to find who was actually billing you. And so that's where we started was, was that one really narrow pain point of just connecting to people's accounts and showing them their recurring charges. And then from there, um, as people signed up and started getting data, I think I was just really struck by the, the lack of visibility into, into personal finance, right? And just how many blind spots there are. Um, and so we said, you know what? This isn't an app about, you know, finding or tracking subscriptions. This is an app about just getting a clean understanding and running your finances in a healthy way, like holistically. Yeah. And in fact, that sounds like a, a bit of an evolution from when when we spoke uh, like a couple of years ago that um, it does seem like at least my my interpretation and I've been using it during that during that time as well. But it, it's my uh, my interpretation was definitely more about the spotting those recurring uh, expenses and the savings around that. And, and so as you described the business as as more of a centralized financial management system, that's that's a cool evolution. Yeah, it's there's been a few sort of um, expanding of, of visions uh, over the. I guess we've been working on it for six years now. So over the last six years, there's been um, I think four distinct chapters where each time the, the scope of our ambition expanded and the the size of the challenge we wanted to tackle expanded with it. Yeah, and just for what it's worth, uh, as soon as I downloaded the app and started looking at my recurring bills, I turned to my wife and I said, "Hey, do we still use this?" And it instantly saved us some money. So. Uh, I also very much saw in that early onboarding experience, that activation moment, um, how it was really trying to take me through these levels of not just focusing on, on one piece of my finances, but the whole the whole sort of big picture. So um, yeah, yeah. what I wanted to start with is we actually interviewed Jamie Eldon, who's the chief revenue officer of Shutterstock a few months ago. And I think Sean and I were both surprised to learn how for Jamie, that role is just as much about driving the culture of innovation as it is about the dollars and cents. And I'm curious how you look at your role as chief revenue officer. I know you actually, I think you were a CEO before this. How do you look at the role of chief revenue officer and where does it fit into the context of growth? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think in a, in a B2B company versus a B2C company, there, that role really takes a very different shape. In B2B, chief revenue officer is, is kind of your head of sales usually or head of sales and account management. Um, for us, we don't have sales and we don't have account management because we're a direct-to-consumer app. Right. And so if you think, okay, well, the role is responsible for revenue, you sort of look at the pieces that make up revenue in a, in a consumer app and it pretty much touches the entire company. Right. So, so obviously that means working really closely with marketing to, to get users into the app that we can then monetize. 
it means bridging that that gap from marketing to product because obviously product is what people are paying for. Um, but uh, you know, the product team spends a lot of time thinking about how to build helpful and engaging products and maybe a little bit less time thinking about how to extract revenue from those products. So you have to sort of make sure that's top of mind, right? But it also means supporting really the entire rest of the company. And that means making sure that the, um, the recruiting team is, is working on all cylinders so that uh, you've got the, the right amount and right types of talent coming into the company. It means working with legal to make sure the company's staying, staying not just in compliance uh, from a regulatory standpoint, but also fulfilling all its obligations with all the different partners. It means uh, mapping out who those partners are and figuring out who you're going to work with, either to enhance the product or to, to, to drive revenue. Uh, so it, it is a pretty far-reaching uh, role. And, and do you see it as something that, um, you know, maybe some companies might be thinking more like a, like the CEO is maybe more external facing and there's maybe like a chief operating officer who's kind of more organizing operations where chief revenue officer is being something where it's more outcome based maybe than just simply operations. So does it replace kind of even the chief operating officer or is that kind of a, uh, a, a an additional role on top of what you're doing? It's a good question. I really, I really think it, it varies by company, right? But I, I think fundamentally, you know, you're in you're in a service role where you sort of want to free up the the creative geniuses within the company and the, the marketing geniuses and the product geniuses to keep doing what they're doing, but um, you keep the business on track, not necessarily in the background, but but free of their their headspace or their mind share. The other thing is, you know, every there's a there's a lot of different types of CEOs, right? You've got CEOs that love doing the the external facing. You've got CEOs that are more operational, and you have CEOs that are more product focused. So, so at Truebill, um, our CEO, who is my older brother, happens to be just a fantastic uh, product guy. And so he's his his day to day is spent primarily being chief product officer, actually. So. That means that um, the more I can I can take off his plate, the more he can focus on that, the better off the company is. And and like I said, that's sort of the measurable um, metric. There is is ultimately you know is the company growing revenue in a healthy way. A lot of different ingredients go into growing revenue in a healthy way, and so those all sort of tend to get wrapped into that that CRO domain. Right. When and assuming that uh, that building out the team as a function of that revenue growth. Um, and yeah, obviously fundraising and other things, there's a lot of indicators that you guys are doing really well. Um, one of the the few public indicators that you can see is, is in, um, team growth. Um, but you know, everything from I've noticed, you know, comedy channel, I see advertisements coming up on there quite a bit for true bill, which has been really cool over the last, uh, several months. Um, maybe it's happened longer than that, but I just started noticing it more in the, the last several months. Um, but, uh, all, all indicators are that you guys are on fire. So, can you can you give us a little bit of a of an insight into that that journey that that growth journey that has gotten you to the trajectory on right now? Yeah, um, you know, Truebill is an interesting case in that we did not launch and start crushing it from day one. We had a, a real solid, you know, one and a half to two years of really struggling to find a product that would resonate with people and and. More difficult to find um, a business model that that would support growth, and so we sort of chugged along in a in a flatlined way for for nearly two years. Um, during which time, you know, no investors would touch us. Um, we were we were sort of not not one of the cool kids at the party. Um, and it took 
it took a lot of, a lot of experimentation to to get to product market fit and then when we did that's when things really took off um and i think you know we we six x revenue year over year then six x revenue year over year again and then i think like five x next year and then like two and a half x and then like 1.75 x or <laughs> law of big numbers start kicking in so, yeah <laughs> so I, I think you know i was just looking at this and in the last 48 months we only had one month where we did not grow revenue month over month so it's it's been a fun ride yeah, that's that's amazing. So I, I I had a follow up question as you were going because, um, you know, it, as you described your story there, I was thinking about you know the the number of times that um, people talk about like product market fit. You just know it. Everything's flying off the shelves. It's it's, it's working. That's kind of a Mark Andreessen. I think sort of when it, when he first time I read about the term product market fit was on some of Mark Andreessen's old blog posts, and that was as he described it as like, you'll know it when you're there. It's just, everything's going crazy. And in my experience, it's a lot more of, uh, you know, the core experience might be great, but there's, there's some things that you need to do before everything starts working well. And, um, but you, you kind of beat me to the punch by saying, I don't think we had product market fit. And then we did have product market fit. What was it that sort of flipped things into product market fit for you? So when we launched the uh, the product, um, you know, if you looked at the fintech space five years ago, it looked very different from how it looks today. Um, today, you have companies like Robinhood and Chime um, and Acorns and Dave and, and a whole slew of others and Stash and Betterment um, that are, you know, sort of providing a, a service where they touch people's money and people in pretty much all of those cases, except for one, I guess, uh, are paying them directly. But five years ago, the, the fintech darlings were like Credit Karma and NerdWallet. Um, and they were monetizing via affiliate offers, basically recommending credit cards or loans or that sort of thing. Um, and so we thought that was going to be our path. You know, we'd help you understand your finances and then we would recommend great products to you. Uh, that just did not work. And not only did it not work, it was, it was actually really detrimental to our, our product evolution. Because what happens is when you're solely dependent on credit card recommendations, for instance, for, for revenue your product lens becomes, okay, how do I push credit cards in a more contextual way in more places to get more clicks with higher conversion and ultimately more payout, right? Um, so, so all of a sudden, your, your customer is not your users. Your customer is whatever credit card company you're pushing. Um, and the way you serve them is not, not going to be in line with the way you serve your users. Um, so for us, what we... You know, our, our sort of last Hail Mary as the company was on death's doorstep was we launched a premium model um, where users could pay a few dollars for, for some premium features within the app that we sort of added at the last minute. And uh, the conversion actually just really, really shocked us. It, it blew away our, our projections. Um, and instantly sort of that, that kicked off a realignment of, okay, you know what, like these are our customers, not, not credit card companies or insurance companies or loan companies. So let's realign product to build the best product for our users that they're going to pay for it and that they're going to stick around and keep paying for. Yeah. It's so, so interesting. Ethan and I, our, our, uh, our, our relationship goes back 20 plus years and we, we worked on an ad supported games business in the, in the nineties. And I want to say that's the last ad supported business I worked on because I came to the same realization that when, when you have 
two customers that have very distinct needs as you as you lean toward one the you know the advertiser you you junk up the experience for the other and and so you're just pulled in two different directions where it is definitely the next business i worked on after that was log me in where same thing we had a a freemium model and um you know you can you just you can focus on one specific customer and how to how to keep better serving that customer and yeah i've definitely i i know when i left the uh, uproar I, I had definitely sworn off any ad supported businesses not to say that it's necessarily a, a, a bad model but i didn't want to be a part of it for the exact reason that you said i think with your premium model what's really interesting is that you have a pay what you think is fair um sort of approach which you know i've seen elsewhere but i'm i'm curious if that's been a big factor in the success, when that started and how that surprised you as you've, as you've gone? Yeah, well, we certainly didn't start with that. So we started with, you know, a traditional premium model where, um, you know, it was pay a few dollars a month for premium. And then naturally, as an extension of that, we started to experimentation. So we said, okay, can we get people to buy annual packages? And what's the price sensitivity here? And it was in the midst of all that experimentation that um, someone on the team just threw out the idea, you know what, like, instead of us trying to experiment our way into it, why don't we just let the users tell us? And so that's exactly what we did. We, we launched a test where instead of saying, okay, premium is $5 a month, um, we said, hey, you know what? We're all in this together. Let's, why don't you pay what you think is fair? Um, and obviously the fact that we're, that's where we've landed means you know, we're, we're not, we don't randomly pick things, we test things. So, so it worked. I, I have heard that it hasn't worked for other companies. So I think you know, it's not just a universal like, do this and it's going to work out. I think, you know, it lends itself better to some types of products. And I think you also have to get the messaging right. And it has to come from a place that feels authentic to the end user. Yeah, just building on that, I, you know, I noticed as I went through the, the process to set up, I mean, it's a pretty involved process and you do a lot along the way to really introduce the entire value proposition and to help users kind of understand what they'll be getting, but then you do hit a wall and it's not the usual wall, which is the paywall. You actually hit this wall first, which is give us your connect to your checking and, and credit card. There's no alternative there, and which is an interesting sort of approach. Um, so I think with that and the pay what you think is fair, they're both pretty, pretty bold approaches. And you mentioned experimentation. How, how much of, of, of the thinking, you know, the process to get you there is about experimenting and asking the right questions of your, or your users um, versus gut feeling. One thing we did early on that really paid off was, um, you know, when we had a small team of, I think maybe just four or five developers, we really invested in building out a, a very robust testing harness that we could use to constantly deploy tests. Um, in many cases, even without, without, uh, developer resources needed. So, so our designer or product marketing people can, can launch tests, uh, run those tests, adjust the allocation of percentages of users that are, that are seeing those tests, and then get clean results across uh, several different vectors that you'd want to measure um, without any engineering or data resources needed. And that's, that's paid off immensely. Um, beyond that is, is, as you mentioned, you know, signing up for a personal finance app is a, it's a pretty involved experience. Um, and so that's been literally iterated over years. And it's, it's a combination of both. It's, it's someone forming a hypothesis, testing it, keeping what works, tossing out what doesn't. And then at the end of that, going right back to the starting point and, you know, forming a new hypothesis and, and retesting. Um, you know, I guess one of the things that, that 
sounds obvious now, but that I didn't really grasp earlier on in the journey is you don't build a product, launch it and and be done with it. Um, like launching a product takes more resources than building it and supporting it takes more resources than launching it. So early on, I fall into this trap of, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this thing and then the developers will be freed up and they can do the next thing. And it's like, no, once you do that thing, that's when the, the real work starts because like you built it. Now you got to endlessly tune it, tweak it and adjust it to get the types of uh, adoption and engagement that you want. And so those, those resources are never going to be freed up if, if you're doing it the right way. Yeah. And is that, is that just a trap of overconfidence a bit in, in just like, oh my gosh, this, this thing needs to be built. Once we get it out there, it's, it's, it's going to work. And then, and then we can move on to those other things rather than like assuming that there's a tweaking period that you're going to need to dial things in or um, is it something else? Well, it's not a tweaking period. It's eternal tweaking. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It will never end if you're doing it, if you're doing it well. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and again, that makes that makes total sense, right? Like Apple didn't launch the iPhone and then say, all right, engineers, like let's move on to the next product, right? Right. Like, that iPhone team has grown, I'm sure, tenfold since the first iPhone. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, so again, you know, as I say now, it sounds like the most obvious thing in the world, but um, it was a costly lesson to, to learn. And it, it took too many, I had to learn it too many times over for it to really stick. <laughs> and was that something uh, in the earlier time at webs did you did you maybe um get, get lucky with what you first came out with that it worked maybe a little better out of the gate and required less tweaking to at least be viable and and maybe that that put you in that frame of mind that that's how it works or or did you just forget about the web's experience and it was the exact same kind of challenge in the beginning um you know, webs and 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 Truebill, the the pace of development and the pace of innovation has been has been night and day. Um, you know, development of webs was happening fifteen years ago, um, and so I just think that um, you know, since then, so much has changed. Um, you know, a lot of lessons did carry over, but. Um, you get into this new pace of innovation and also everything at Truebill is going a lot better than things at webs for the most part. Um, the, the changes we made were more impactful. The, the things we launched got more adoption. And so it did lend itself to some overconfidence, certainly. Yeah. But, but at the same time, you just said, you know, at one point with Truebill, you were at death's door and, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure there was, there was that question at that point, are we just wasting our time? Do we, do we just fold this thing up? Do we, do we move on last hail Mary, as you were saying with, with introducing a, a different business model? Um, like what, uh, that, that doesn't sound like that was an easy place to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was funny. Um, so I called one of our investors and, uh, I ran the numbers. We had three months of runaway left. We had 300 K in the bank and we were burning about a hundred thousand a month. And so I called him and I said, hey, you know, here's the situation. And he said, um, you got to sell this thing right now. And I said, well, actually, no, I don't because I have three months runway left in the bank. He said, it's going to take you three months to sell. Right. You got to sell it right now. I'm going to set up two meetings with you. I'm not, I won't name the companies, but two you know, big companies um, for you to, and you can sell to one of them. So he, he sent those intros and I went and I had initial meetings and you know, like an idiot, I, I thought to myself, um, okay, he says it's going to take three months. I've, I can do it in six weeks. So, um, so I pulled the team into the conference room and I said, guys, we have six weeks to, to do something. Like, let's throw every idea we have on the board. Um, and we threw, you know, 
anything we could think of on the board, and we sort of ranked them on on really you know chance to save the business. Um, and uh, I said we can do two of these things: one small one, one big one. And um, I don't remember what the other one was, but uh, premium was was one of them. Um, and when we launched it, uh, was that the big one or the small one? God, I, <laughs> I think that was the small one because it, it was not, um, you know, we had the product. All we had to do was put, put yeah. billing on it. Um, and so, uh, you know, we had forecasted 2% conversion and we launched it and, you know, I remember we launched on Friday on Saturday, I woke up and I checked the dashboard and it was at 7%. And I, you know, slacked the team. I'm like, guys, is this, is this right? Do we trust this data? <laughs> right. um, First instinct, and, this must be broken. <laughs> right. And so, you know, we watched it for a week, we made a tweak and we got it up to, to 12%. And I was like, wow, okay, there's, there's something here. And I, I ran out and got someone to throw in a, a, a check that was, uh, would keep us alive for a couple more months. So we went from, you know, two months runway to, to, you know, six or seven months runway. And then, by the end of that, um, we had traction and, and it looked like, you know, the cover was sort of hitting a turning point. Do you think if you, if you still had, you know, a few million dollars in the bank at that point that you would have, uh, had the urgency to, um, have to, have to figure that out? No. And, you know, even, even after that, the raising the series A and the series B was enormously difficult. Um, we just, did not have what investors wanted, which seems crazy now because the, the investors who do do the A and the B have, have done quite well. But, um, you know, fundraising was always really, really challenging for us. Um, and looking back now, I think that was a real blessing. If you look at sort of the people we, we see ourselves competing with, they've all raised hundreds of millions of dollars or several times uh, more funding than us. Um, and at the time, you know, I, I sort of thought that wasn't fair and, and was a little bit resentful of that even. But um, again, now that's that's been a huge, a huge blessing in disguise because it really forced us from the beginning to, one, build a, build a real business um, with a viable business model. And two, to, to face harsh realities when, when, they, when they did present themselves. Um, and three, to, to grow the business in a, in a smart, sort of scalable way. Um, and that's put us in, in really, really great footing now. I was just curious when you, uh, when you're estimating the impact of premium, do you think maybe part of the reason, or um, do you think part of the reason why you underestimated so much was, uh, just the difference in, in how mobile maybe performs versus, uh, other, other platforms? That's a good question. So I previously worked, uh, before Truebill, I spent five years in ad tech. And so I worked with a lot of subscription companies, uh, helping them, you know, set up and tune campaigns, uh, which meant that I would see all their all their conversion data, and um, you know where where Truebill is in terms of premium conversion is is way ahead of anything I've ever seen or or ever heard of. Um, so I don't think my forecasts, based on the data set I had, were were unrealistic um, or or overly pessimistic. I think. Um, you know, for, for a number of reasons, one, the type of product, two, the way we presented and three, just the need that people feel work together to, to make, to lend itself really well to, to a premium plan. This week's breakout growth podcast episode is sponsored by SAP. SAP helps businesses increase productivity and achieve real-time transparency with the power and flexibility of rise with SAP S4HANA cloud. 
If you have ambitious goals and are working to lead markets and industries, then you probably already know how important it is to align with a technology partner who will scale and drive innovation with your business. With Grow by SAP, future industry leaders like yourself don't have to rely on stitched together solutions that don't talk to each other to manage business finances, operations, and customer relations. Instead, leveraging the flexibility of SAP's cloud-based solution, you can power all these in one place and gain unprecedented insights into the performance of your business from end to end. Whether you're on the brink of or have already achieved breakout growth success, learn more by visiting sap.com slash high growth. Would the business have been viable if, if it had been on the low end of your expectations? Or would it maybe viable, but just much more of a struggle? You know, yeah, if we had been, if we had launched and it had been 3% and we got it up to, to 6 or 8 or 10%, um, you know, there may have been a small, you know, 10-person company there that could that could chug along and, and try to figure something out. Uh, but we definitely, there, there definitely wouldn't have been a path to, to hyperscaling, which is which is what we did. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So... And we and just uh, we did have competitors who sort of you know fell into that where, you know they they sort of existed and, and got to about you know fifteen or twenty employees and sort of stayed there for for years, um, which I you know I have to attribute to to not really cracking that premium conversion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so one of the things you talked about is in that transition from uh, being more affiliate driven and sort of having uh, two two customers or one big customer with the other one just being a means to generating affiliate revenue. Um, as the business shifted to where you're now focused on really serving the the end user needs and and your monetization is aligned with the value you're providing, um, how do you? How do you think about what is the what is the sort of the key metric that you're trying to optimize overall in the business? You might call it a north star metric, or just in general, how, what what's kind of the health metric of the business? Yeah, so I think, um, and it's it's difficult to to pick one, but I would say it's the LTV to CAC ratio, right? Your your lifetime value divided by your cost of the customer. Um, and within that, a lot of different numbers play into that, right? So your um, your your average price plays into that. Your premium conversion rate plays into that. Your uh, retention plays into that, right? And then if you look at retention, well, the retention is made up of you know the biggest thing playing into that is engagement. So so within that LTV CAC, you sort of have every team in the company being a stakeholder for for one or both of those, right? So so your CAC is your marketing team. Your LTV is your product team, your operations team, your affiliate team, your uh, customer support team, right? Uh, That's kind of the North Star. And is it possible to have a really strong LTV to CAC, uh, but not having having a user base that um, continues to get a lot of value from the product? But it's just somehow you you become one of those subscriptions that they forget to cancel. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know it's it's getting harder, <laughs> partially because of Trouble. It's getting harder to coast by and exist as a subscription that people forget to cancel. Yeah. Um, but if they're not using Truebill, then you're all right. <laughs> yeah. I just don't think that's that's the way to. Build I know that's that's better. not the goal of the business. I I just mean it more in the sense of you know when you take it down to those concrete numbers, they they really don't necessarily say much necessarily about the mission. They're definitely um, execution operational numbers, 
But in terms of the value that you provide long term, that up and to the right growth is probably going to be a function of how much value you're providing to customers and totally. you continue to provide that. For us, we haven't seen, you know, we see a, a really tight connection between retention and engagement, right? Um, and then, you know, what we've done is we've uh, sort of built out our data team is really start to understand what types of engagements increase uh, or the, have the biggest impact on retention, right? And so not surprisingly, when you do something that saves someone money, um, that's the best thing you can do to, to increase retention, right? And, and you know, mentally that, that makes sense. So, so if you save someone 100 bucks and this app is $50 a year, they say, you know what, I'm already 2x in the green, I'll, I'll keep it around. And if it does one thing for me next year also, that's, that's paying for itself twice again, right? Um, so, so no, we haven't sort of been... We haven't seen that that phenomenon where we were just able to get a great LTV CAC because people people forget about the product. Um, right. So it's kind of understanding what's behind that LTV and behind that LTV is is retention engagement and and behind the retention and engagement is value. Right. The other thing is, you know, as as you scale your your user base and your company, um, you know, when when you launch, you throw your your app up on Product Hunters or something, you're going to get like early adopter enthusiasts, right? But your first 10,000 customers versus your second million customers are going to look very different in their intent levels, in their personas, just everything about them is going to, is going to look pretty different. Right. And so, you know, it's, you can, you can, that LTV CAC ratio, it gets more and more challenging over time. If you're, especially if your product is not, is not uh, being iterated on and improved over that time. Right. So, so what you may find is, okay, like, my first 50,000 customers were early adopters that are super passionate about the problem and the LTV CAC ratio on them was great. But from 500,000 to a million customers or 500,000 to 550,000 customers, that LTV CAC fell apart because there's just no more of that early adopter audience for us to go after. And, and the intent level of the people coming in is much lower. So either you need to do more to build intent and get them into the product or your business falls apart. And I've got to assume that that there's a big aha moment in what Ethan described as you know, like that signing up and like, wait, are we still paying for that? And asking, asking the spouse or, you know, it, it, and so it, would you kind of consider that as like, if you can get someone to that first time of recognizing some savings, that's an important part of, of that, that lock-in. I think there's, there's two big pieces. Um, one is exactly that, right? If you can show someone something they didn't know, then, then you've got an aha moment. The other thing is, um, you know, we're trying to get people to think about their finances, which is usually actually a little bit unpleasant, right? Um, and so if I said, hey, Sean, how, how, how are you doing with your money? You'd say, I'm fine, right? <laughs> kind of everyone's, everyone's default response, right? But I go, no, no, like really, let's think about this. Like where could you be doing better? What are you not doing well? Um, and if I can get you to sort of just take a few seconds to actually do an honest assessment, then that gets you in a much better state of mind to, to come into the app and be open to, to discovering, right? And so I think our first aha moment actually happens before a user does anything in the app, right? It's, it's just in the education of, of that pre-onboarding almost, where we get them sort of thinking in the mindset of like, where am I good? Where am I not good? And what, what do I want to improve? Um, and then from there, we, we collect their information and then they get to the dashboard. And then that's when they have the aha moment, but they've sort of been mentally primed for it. Yeah, it's a, it reminds me a little bit of Noom. Do you know Noom? I don't. Uh, the, it's a weight loss kind of health management app. Um, they're on fire. They're 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 doing really well, and uh, 
they have an onboarding process where ultimately, you know, the the aha moment for them is is more um, when you actually have set your weight target and you believe you're going to hit your weight target. That's that's kind of more of the aha moment. Like obviously, waiting for you to lose weight would would probably be too long, <laughs> right? And, and we certainly didn't invent this, right? Like, you know, you go and you join a gym and you have to, you have to answer all these questions about like, what are your fitness goals? Um, what's your weight now? What's your ideal weight, right? But it's, it's to get you into the, the mindset of goal-based thinking um, and actually, you know, doing a, an honest self-assessment. Yeah, it felt, like, it felt like it was a journey to help me feel like I was getting control over my finances. That's what I, like, that was sort of the aha for me is I'm getting to this point where I'm going to control my finances the savings I, I figure will come later, but it, getting control and understanding them seems like that first step. So yeah, it was really interesting. I'm, I'm curious what, as a, what you do in your role um, to really foster the culture and environment at Truebill so that everybody's sort of focused on, on those right things, on, on those key metrics, but really in, in inspiring creativity. I mean, you can see it's a really creative app and the way that everything's approached. I'm curious how you inspire that creativity and foster that as an organization. Yeah, I think one is is real transparency, right? Um, not just transparency, but but employee education in terms of understanding what the business is and how the business works and, and what matters. And then two is, um, you know, I think we've done a really good job of avoiding any type of um, territorialness within the company. So there's, there's no element of, hey, stay in your lane or that's not your job. Uh, I really think everyone feels very free to identify somewhere they can be impactful or, or make a difference and to simply go do that. Uh, and, and, and to get very little pushback or no pushback along the way again about, you know, that's not your, your domain. And do you, do you see other companies kind of make mistakes in that area? I've definitely seen other companies make mistakes in that area. I've, I've been at companies that have, that have uh -huh. made <laughs> mistakes in that area. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes sense. Ethan, you want to go ahead. Sure. Uh, yeah. Just as we, you know, dig a little bit deeper into the, into the organization, are there any other insights you can share with our audience just about how you create an effective organization focused on growth? Yeah. So with, with growth specifically, um, one thing that's, that's worked really well for us is our company is headquartered in right outside Washington, DC on the East coast. Um, but we intentionally kept marketing based in San Francisco. And what that does is, or, or perhaps a byproduct of that is marketing has, has always been able to operate very independently of the rest of the company. Um, you know, marketing teams, personally, I think marketers are just at least good marketers or a lot of them are different DNA from engineers or data scientists or product people. Even they, they work at a different pace. They have different risk appetites. Um, and, you know, I think what inevitably happens in, in pretty much every company I've seen is, is that that sort of corporate leadership tries to get control over the marketing team, and it, it comes from a lot of fronts, right? Like the finance team might say, "Okay, we need a uh, you know a more rigid approval process before marketing just runs out and spends money," or design uh, might say, "Okay, you know what? We need approval on the materials marketing is putting on billboards or on TV or other places to make sure it's brand consistent, right?" Um, or product might say, you know, we need we need copy approval on what marketing is saying to make sure it's managing people's expectations correctly as they come into the app. Uh, and each one of those things is like one cut, you know, on the body of marketing that that kind of 
in aggregate leads to death or at least stagnation. Um, and so, so we've really sort of isolated marketing. They have their own office. They have their own. We've given them their own data resources. We try to give them their own engineering resources um, so that they can really operate at their own pace as independently as possible. And I think that's been just a massive, massive advantage for us. Yeah, I've got, I've got to assume that the um, desire to put more controls in place as you, as you grow, it's, it's important to, to kind of uh, keep everything working and you, you sort of need some, some rules around there that where in the early days when you're tiny, you don't need that, but, um, but how they can definitely stifle, uh, stifle creativity and all the things you mentioned from a marketing perspective, whether it's brand controls or budget controls or, you know, approval processes. And those are all things that take away from that creative problem solving. Are there any other kind of, uh, challenges in terms of, you know, keeping, keeping the, the, that creative culture as you're growing and, and, uh, trying to, trying to make sure that you're not, um, you're not stifling some of that innovation that's been important to get where you are. Yeah. Beyond that, I think it's just, it's just allowing people to feel empowered at an individual level. Right. Um, and it's also including people on the creative process. So for instance, um, you know, let's take a role like a, a visual designer or a video editor, right? Um, you know, there's, you can approach that like, okay, here's, here's the video, here's how we want it edited, go do it. And that person is sort of a cog in the machine. Or you can sort of hire people that, that have a vision and you say, you know what, like, you know more about video editing than I do. Like, here's the assets, make it something awesome, right? And, and those are two different roles that, and two different types of people that, that will ultimately succeed at that, right? And so the more you can sort of, skew towards the latter, which, which gets difficult to do at scale. Um, but the more you can sort of try to push in that direction, I think, I think the better off you are. Mm-hmm. So, so speaking of marketing that you, that you mentioned having, having that San Francisco based organization where you're trying to, trying to keep them creative and, and take away some of the, the things that would, uh, interrupt that creativity. Um, when you actually then look at how most new people discover, uh, Truebill, is it, is it primarily through those marketing efforts or is, is maybe referral really important in there? Or what, what does the, what does that discovery process look like? Yeah, it's definitely primarily driven through paid advertising. Um, you know, 18 months ago, that would have meant a lot of Facebook and Instagram followed by some other social channels. Today, that's that's diversified quite a bit. So you mentioned you see Truebill commercials on Comedy Central now. Um, we have quite a bit of out of home. So that means, you know, subway ads or, or buses or the tops of taxis, in addition to things like TV, influencer podcast. And then, of course, all the traditional, you know, online and digital channels. Um, referral is something that, you know, has never really been super successful for us, um, which is kind of surprising. And you know, the only thing that that sort of I've been able to come up with is that um, people's finances, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases are sort of unpleasant or potentially yeah. even shameful, right? Uh-huh. And so- Or at the very uh, least, very private. <laughs> or at the very least, very private, right. And so it just doesn't seem to be something that lends itself well to people telling others about it or, or sharing it with others. Mm-hmm. Now that makes sense. Um, and then, uh, we just one quick follow-up on, on the, uh, some of the activities you talked about, obviously the online stuff's pretty easy to track. Um, how, how do you guys know that some of those like influencer or even the TV ads are, 
our um, how, how are you kind of tracking ROI on that in a in a brief way, <laughs> or are you and you or do you do you just take it on uh, on faith? <laughs> no, we are a like a relentless performance driven shop, um, sure. and so it's it's taken some some time to get comfortable with those types of spend. But um, you know the the technology to track it has actually come a long way in a short amount of time. So for instance. Uh, with things like um, buses or subway, uh, let's take subway ads for instance, right? You can actually look at performance uh, in you know a one mile radius of those ads versus performance on the other side of the city, and you look at pre-campaign and post-campaign performance. You can measure it that way. Um, TV, you can look at. Um, let's say you run a, a TV commercial in Austin, Texas, right? You can look at installs in Austin from the five minute period before the ad ran and installs in the five minute period after the ad ran and gets some at least immediate lift, right? Um, but then from there, TV tends to have a longer actual delay from impression to conversion than, than say, digital. So you, you start working with other technology companies to, to try to understand what that, what that tail looks like. Um, yeah, we had a whole episode on, on tracking TV not too long ago with a company called Tatari. Oh, yeah. So we use Tatari and they're fantastic. Oh, okay, cool. Um, yeah. And then, um, and of course, you've got your survey, right, where, where people sort of self-report how they, mm-hmm. how they learned about Truebill. Um, and so you sort of combine what Tatari tells you with with what you know your third party measurement partner mm-hmm. tells you with what the survey tells you, and you try to put it together into triangulate into, a bit on it <laughs> into something that you feel confident putting you know hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars behind. Yeah, but you know in aggregate that the whole thing you, you know that's that's the the CAC LTV ratios that you talked about. You know that in aggregate that's working well, and as much of the granular picture as you can, you're managing that, but. Uh, but at the end of the day, the aggregate has to work well for the business to be sustainable. <laughs> right. And, and there are moments where like, um, you know, you spend a bunch on TV this month and the, um, or TV and, and out of home and the metrics attached to those look pretty dismal, but you get to the, the end of the month and your, you know, your aggregate row as your blended LTV CAC looks good. And you're like, okay, well, like something worked, um, <laughs> you know, and then, and then you're sort of, sort of like looking backward to try to figure out where did we underestimate and how do we iterate and tune the model to be more accurate going forward. Yeah. And that's where your, your surveys though are not saying that people are, are finding out through word of mouth. So that's, that's often the answer when, when it works well, but uh, yeah, interesting, but I'm sure we could do, we could do a lot more questions in that area, but we better move on. Go ahead, Ethan. Yeah. I just want to, you know, we've, we've, we've gone through activation and your aha moments quite a bit here, but I was just curious knowing that referral is a a challenge for you. it seems it seems like that whole process so much depends on building trust, and I'm curious, especially earlier on when you didn't have the you know the the brand built on TV and in other places. If it was di- if you found it difficult to give users the you know a sense of trust in the product through that activation process, and did you have to evolve that a lot during you know over the over time? You know, I think um, you know we're at a disadvantage in that you know, finance doesn't necessarily lend itself well to referral, but it does lend itself well to trust. Specifically, if you can save someone money, um, they will trust you with their kids. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we do things like we, we automatically cancel subscriptions or recurring charges you don't want. We will identify that you're being, you're overpaying for maybe your cable or your cell phone, and we will negotiate a better rate on that bill for you. We'll even, um, you know, if we see that you're about to overdraft, we'll advance, you know, up to $100 ahead of your next paycheck with no interest, no fees, no credit check on the honor system, uh, just to sort of help build, help bridge that gap, right? So, 
So there's a lot of individual features within our product that um, if, if a user actually makes use of, give us a, a really high degree of trust very quickly. Gotcha. Yeah, I, and I wonder if, if maybe there is even more people talking about uh, Truebill maybe not direct referral, but more people just talking about it that helps build trust. I, I know uh, I worked on a product called RoboKiller and a lot of- I love RoboKiller. <laughs> yeah, um, it, for me, it was always interesting that like a, a lot of our, I think our referral was people sharing their experience with it, but it, it wasn't about you know instantly going to the app and, and making a purchase. So it was hard to necessarily track that. Um, but I do think it was, uh, it was a big factor in things. So yeah, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm curious also, once you've activated those users, what, it, what do you think is the difference between users who stick with Truebill and, and become long-term engaged ret- retained users versus those who don't, don't stick around? You know, part of it is, is their initial intent um, and, and just their personality type, right? Different people sort of like different levels of control or, or visibility into their finances. Another is, um, you know, there, there's a few sort of psychographic vectors that we've mapped out that, that identify how suited someone is for the app. Uh, for instance, uh, one, one trait would be how many different institutions they bank with or how many different types of accounts they have. So if someone, you know, if we're talking about an app that helps you keep track of your finances, if you just have a, a debit account and nothing else, your finances are probably pretty straightforward. Whereas if you have a checking account, a savings account, an investment account, an IRA, and two or three credit cards, plus a PayPal and a Venmo account, well, that's a lot harder to keep track of, right? So Triple is just fundamentally going to be more useful to you. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, the other side, those, those are things that, that sort of happen at the top of funnel, right? And so we, we obviously feed that into a marketing machine to target the right types of users at the top of the funnel. Um, and then within the product, there's activation, right? Which is sort of identifying what type of person or what type of psychographic profile someone is and then trying to craft the right experience for them. And then what, you know, one of the things I've noticed uh, over time is kind of an evolution um, in my own experience with you, Bill, where it, uh, where, you know, sometimes I'll I'll get like an email that outlines um, my expenses or something that I'm paying too much on. And then other times it'll just be, you have five notifications in Truebill. Um, what's the what's sort of the the testing that's uh, gone into that, and and then what yeah you know, how how do you think about the the role of say it, can people continue to get a lot of value if they don't log into the app but just get get this information through email for example? Yep. Um, so you have two questions there. Let me let me take on the first one in terms of the the role in testing there, it, it actually has evolved over the over the last couple of years, right? Because in the beginning, when you don't have robust data resources, you sort of create one of these emails or push notification and you say, okay, are people clicking it? Great. Is it getting people into the app? Great. It's a win, right? Um, and then what happens is you get a little bit more sophisticated and you say, okay, you know what? This one actually brought people into the app, but some of them canceled their premium. So it's bad, right? Because we sort of poked the bear, right? Um, and then you get, so that opens up a question like, okay, do we want to not message users if we think it's going to make them churn or not, right? And there's a whole debate beyond that. We actually said, no, like, we're not going to not message people for that reason. But then ultimately, um, where you sort of want to end up is actually like, okay, how does this sending versus holding out this message increase actual like long-term engagement and long-term retention, right? And so it's not like, 
So you might you might create a new email and you say, okay, you know what? Like every time we send this, like X number of people end up canceling their subscription, but um, those who don't actually end up staying around for longer, right? And it takes it takes a reasonable amount of data sophistication for that. And then on top of that, you start looking at okay, like maybe we don't have to treat everyone the same way. Like maybe Sean only wants this, you know, once every two months, whereas Ethan wants it every two weeks or something, right? Um, or or it's just more relevant for Ethan because his finances are more volatile than Sean's. Um, so, so, you know, as, as you kind of acquire more resources within your company, the, the layers of sophistication with which you make those decisions get, get progressively more complex. Yeah. And then um, I lost your second question. What was it? Uh, you got me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I know what it was. It was, it was the, the question between, um, like, uh, can they get value in the email versus, yeah. Um, versus yeah, sure. having to so, log back into the app to get value? Yeah, there's there's a number of ways people get value without having to open the app, and I think that that continues to increase over time. So, for instance, we have an automated savings account which sets aside a few dollars every every week or every few days towards a goal like a rainy day fund or a vacation. Right? That that works in the background whether you open the app or not. Right? We have transaction monitoring, so if if something happens that you're not expecting, it's going to flag it for you, um, which is kind of like insurance, right? Hopefully you haven't had to use your car insurance in the last couple of years, but it's there if you need it, right? And then and then beyond that, I think just the the aggregation gets more valuable over time. So for me, you know, I've had Trubo for a few years now and just being able to jump back three years to see to like see about a purchase I did two years ago or or you know how things have been trending over multiple years, whether that's my credit score or, or my net worth or something else. I think um, that history becomes valuable and worth keeping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, it just reminds me a little bit of uh, when I was at Growth Hackers and, and um, you know, our, our expectation of the value people got with the product was you're coming in, contributing in the community and, and just, you know, logging into the website a lot. And then I would go out to events and people would come up to me and say, I love the top 10 email every week. I'd look so forward to those stories that kind of through all of that um, community engagement, it sort of curated this top 10 most important growth stories. And, and so the email had a lot more value in it than I thought it did. And so that's why, like when I look at, um, at Truebill, I probably personally have gotten more value from the emails than from logging into the app because it's sort of pushing to me, you know, I spent this much on Amazon. I spent this much in in different areas, but I, I noticed um, six months ago I used to get those emails a lot more, and uh, and then more recently I get the you have six unread notifications in the app, and um, and I just personally, you know, get too busy to log in and see what those notifications are, and so probably the pull for me personally into the app becomes less valuable because I'm not taking action on it where, where the push of information was more valuable, but it doesn't mean that, you know, my, my case necessarily represents all people. And, and when you think about kind of mission and how you deliver on that mission versus like, you know, app engagement may not be the, the overall mission of the business. The mission is to give people that visibility and, and control over their money or whatever, however you state, state the mission. And so that's, that's kind of a, a little bit more on that lining of questioning as well is, you know, can, could this be a fully email, uh, driven experience and still be really valuable for people, for example? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's no, there's no one type of user, right? So for some people, absolutely it could, right. For others, they, they want the app for others. 
they care about more of the the bill negotiation and subscription cancellation and, and those types of things than they do just the the visibility, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, there's I, I can't think of many products that have just one one type of user, and right. so you know, I think if you're if you're doing it right, you have you know four or six different personas, and you're you're trying to make sure that you fit all of them under the umbrella uh, without having thirty personas and trying to build something for everyone, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So finding that balance. You know, I think we could probably go on all day, but uh, I think uh, just uh, out of respect for your time, Yaya, we'll, uh, just one last question before we wrap up. It's one we like to ask all of our guests. What do you feel like you understand about growth now that maybe you didn't understand as well a couple of years ago? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, everything. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's been a learning curve. Um, if I had to say one thing, um, I, I think it's actually about creative you know, coming into this, I knew we had to have, you know, smart ad buying and smart targeting and, and good data. What I underestimated was the importance of, of creative, of a cohesive creative strategy and of, of really investing in, in producing creative that's going to perform. Um, and with it, it, it unlocks all sorts of things that you, you did not think you'd be able to do. And without it, it actually makes literally all of the data you're getting worthless, right? Um, you're, you're, you're testing different channels or different audiences with bad creative, making determinations about those things when, you know, they never had a chance to succeed in the first place. So um, it's interesting you say that. Uh, and it, I think it speaks back to your uh, eternal tweaking uh, comment of, of earlier. I think when it comes to creative, uh, it's a never ending process. And I learned that early. Uh, Sean can tell you when we uh, first started working together, uh, he hired me into a role that was specifically to test a hundred new banner ads every month. Um, and to just keep that process going because it was just never ending, uh, process. It was a never ending, uh, cycle of trying to just get better at what we did through creative. So, um, it's interesting that you, you pick that as such a, a key, a key point. And, I, um, I, I think I've, I think we, Sean and I both continue to see that, uh, in a lot of places. Yeah. I and mean, one of my key takeaways from this conversation is, um, is is really that pivot point of when you felt like you dialed in product market fit. I very few people when they think about product market fit think about the the role of business model in in getting there. And um, I think you you really laid out a great um, insight where it wasn't just getting the business model right, but it was once you got the business model right, it allowed you to focus on a different experience for the users that that ultimately meant they were getting a lot more value. And so that that was probably my biggest takeaway from this conversation. But I'm sure when I go back and listen to it, I'll, I'll, I'll get many more, but um, really, really great stuff. And congrats on all the success since, since we last spoke. And, and, uh, and obviously you were already on a, on a good path at that point, since you've been at it for, for, um, had you said about five years years six years yeah Yeah. so um that's that's awesome so um keep it up (laughs) really appreciate it it's it's been a, a really fun ride but um thank you thank you thanks for listening to the breakout growth podcast please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and while you're at it subscribe so you never miss a show Until next week.